You're listening to Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board, a podcast about life through the lens of music. Welcome to the show. My name is Jay Mack, host of Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board, joined via Zoom with Sam Wade out in Los Angeles saying hello to all you lovely people. We have an amazing show. This may be one of our most amazing uh, shows, Sam Wade. But before we get to that, I would just like to remind our listeners that every Wednesday, a new episode drops on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Spotify. Leave us a review on iTunes. Look us up on Facebook, Two Tape Decks. And this is another one of our ongoing series, our Icon series, where we talk about somebody that really changed or revolutionized music as we know it. Do you want to introduce who we're going to be talking to this evening? J-Mac, we are so incredibly grateful and excited to talk about the Icon uh, for this month, which is Jeff Buckley, uh, unparalleled. You know, he is a very singular artist. And we were lucky enough and and just so honored to have his mother Mary Guibert and Lori Trombley who worked very closely with him managing like his fan club and and all of his affairs was with him during that time period they came in on two tape decks to honor the legacy of Jeff Buckley and it's also very special because we're actually releasing this right around Mother's Day and we just thought it was it would be an amazing time to have Jeff Buckley's mother, Mary Guibert, come in and uh, talk about his life and legacy. If you listen to one Icon series this week, because you may go back and listen to the other ones. If you listen to one this week or one this month or one this year, listen to this Jeff Buckley episode. This interview was amazing. Absolutely. J-Mac, we are so excited. Uh, without further ado, uh, welcome Mary Guibert. Jeff Buckley's mother and curator of his legacy, and Lori Trombley, who worked very closely with him and also directed a documentary about his life. Thanks. Well, I want to say, first of all, that it's up that I am over the moon grateful for the fact that folks like you are still mentioning Jeff's name and playing his music, because it, it, what it does is it gives, it sort of validates my intention from the beginning not to hype Jeff's work, not to uh, 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 shill it out to what to the various things that the that what a major record label would would want to do. I mean, it's just you know it's the nature of the beast. Yeah. But I held out and I and I gave them other things to kind of satiate, uh, uh, you know, and brought them better projects than they really had in mind. If you don't mind me saying so. Sure. But it's because Rude. people keep discovering him and that's what i wanted to make if i didn't do it my way you wouldn't have been able to hear what all of the other production and everything was covering up because of the way they were doing the kind of studio practices of the day everything was compressed and smashed into a very kind of uh, neutral space and i know you guys you sound guys know what i'm talking about well i will absolutely heavy metal subject i want to let you know that uh, Scotty, Jeff called me one night because he and his brother always kind of argued about who was, you know, what was, who rocked more, punk (laughs) or heavy metal. And when he called one morning at 3 a.m. and said, just tell Corey he's right. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Jeff was, you know, I I was saying like a few days ago, like Jeff was 
a metalhead too. Like he yeah. ride around in the back of bands, like just laying down with the music turned way up. Zeppelin was huge in his life. Oh yeah. And Mary probably has a million stories about <laughs> Well, I just I just flashed a mental picture of him at about seven years old. Uh, his stepdad, Ron, owned a Volkswagen repair shop and he used to buy old junkers and fix them up and resell them. And at the time we had an, a, a Volkswagen van that had nothing in it but a, a four foot speaker in the back. <laughs> and, he to, and he used to lay down on the speaker for Led Zeppelin. Wow. And his stepdad would pay for. Yeah, so that's him riding in the back of the van bouncing to <laughs> the speaker. So that's that's like right in his bones, right through his sternum, right? Yeah, that's a that's awesome. What was his favorite Zeppelin song, do you know? You know, I don't think he could have named one. I don't like, think oh. so either. Mm -mm. That was a leading question. I figured it would be something like that. He, he, he loved like ask, well, When people ask me what's Jeff's favorite song, <laughs> it's like asking which is your favorite child. That's yeah. Cool. Whichever <laughs> one I'm listening to now, how's that for a snappy answer? It's a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can definitely hear a lot of Robert Plant's delivery in his in his performance. And but the thing is, when I was digging into Jeff Buckley, um. There was almost too many influences to quite pinpoint because he's so unique. I studied sitar, an Indian instrument, for two years and still play it when my Parkinson's allows me to. And it the one of the other things I noticed right away was his. I guess it was he had a Pakistani meditational singer that he was into, and and it's it's. You right. you can hear it. It's amazing. I listened to the the Shanae recording. He does a he does a cover of one of his songs and. He he's pulling it off. Even speak, yeah. even speaking, I guess it's Hindi. I don't know exactly what language he was singing. Urdu. In. It's Urdu. Uh-huh. Amazing. Just just amazing stuff. Right, right. Well, he actually uh in amongst his uh, belongings was a series of uh, cassette tapes to teach him Urdu. So he because he didn't want to insult the Pakistanis by merely learning it by rote. So he actually took a class so that his pronunciation would be accurate and respectful. And he also got to meet Nusrat. He literally, well, he, first of all, he took one of my first trips to New York when he was getting his band together, he took me to the music center to see Nusrat in concert. It was sublime. It was like going to church. It was the most amazing thing. Just amazing. So I could see why it was such a spiritual thing for him. But he went from Aldemiola, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. At 15, 16, he was literally learning from Al by by uh, copying his fingering and, and everything. So that so much so that I mistook him for playing the record one time and walked into his room wow. and the record player wasn't on. It was him playing. I went, oh shit, it's all over now. <laughs> I wanted him to be a cartoonist or a graphic artist. He was always, you know, drawing and things like that. No, 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 no. It's over now. He's it's music. It's happening. How, how old was he when you, when you first, you know, saw the music in him like that? Oh, my gosh. Well, he, well, he was singing 
as a two-year-old and a, a three-year-old right so uh, and then when he was like four he could carry a melody while I uh, uh, sang uh, um, harmony now that's really extraordinary mm-hmm. right and then when he's by seven and nine he's singing the harmony wow so it was always there, that affinity, whatever part of your brain that has an affinity for music. And I think in some ways he was a form of a, a, of a synesthete. Interesting. Where he, the music was literally like colors in his head or, or other, you know, other sorts of sensory response that was more intense than even, you know, what we feel. We have all kinds of endorphins go through our brains when we are listening and singing and actually and kissing too, they say. Uh, but the but the singing and the music part is is always there, that endorphin reaction to to that that concept or that feeling, that experience. So as a little kid, he was like right there. We used to put the radio on to keep, so that he wouldn't, because uh, I, you know, mom, when Tim left, I was left with a baby, so I moved back home. So it was mom, dad, my brother, my sister, myself, and the kid. And for him to be able to sleep, we would put the radio on in the baby in whatever room he was in so that the rest of the family wouldn't disturb him. So when I would go in, he could make sure if he was awake, I could hear him just vocalizing to the music in the radio. And by the time he was six months old, he was like in a key. <laughs> you know? So it was just, just connected for him. Any other baby would have just slept through it. So I have always held that there was something specific of his innate talents that drew him to, that gravitated him towards that. Also made him so curious about it that he needed to be every kind of musician, you know, a mm-hmm. jazz musician and a classical musician and a, a rock musician and a pop musician and a, you know, and an urban, a Pakistani uh, musician. It all, it all fed him, right? I feel like it was like bigger than like music was like in his bones, but like so much of like his way of communication too, outside of his like doodles. Like it was just such a huge part of who he was. Like he was all wrapped up in it. Like there, there was no end between him and the music. That's, yeah, he, that's did, he devoured, like, everything he li- He didn't just, like, listen to something. Yeah. <laughs> he would, like, devour whatever he was listening to. Yes, yes, yeah. Well, it, it, you know, those influ- when you talk about all of those influences, but they were, it was never sort of a conglomeration. He would go, he had a, 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 a Miles Davis uh, uh, period. He had an Ella Fitzgerald period where he did nothing but listen to Ella day and night. Oh my God, the Genesis period drove me fucking nuts. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> and then, and the kiss at 13, I think 12 or 13, it was all kiss all day, all night. Oh my fucking God. <laughs> I never would have thought that. I never would have thought kiss would have been in his it's amazing. It's all he did. It's all he drew. He cartoons with kiss cartoons all the time. <laughs> and high heels and and lightning 
coming out of their ass and stuff. It was just- <laughs> <laughs> well, Lori, I'm going to ask you, when is the first time you remember hearing Jeff's music? I was a, I was in college and it was my junior year and it, I mean, and that's how I started working for him is I heard, I got the live at Shanae EP as the music editor of my college newspaper. And I usually assigned everything out, but there was something about the cover of that that I was like, oh, I'm going to take this one for myself. And I brought it back to my room and I listened to it, but I couldn't stop. I, I listened to it so many times in a row and it woke something up in me you know I grew up around music my parents loved music but there was something so different about just I don't even remember if there were five or six songs on Shanae but it 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 turned something in me where I couldn't just like let it go and like write a review and be like oh that's a great album I had to do something about it it's the only time that I I felt so compelled you know I had a my little brother word processor and I like wrote that I typed out this letter saying, you know, never heard anything like you. What can I do? I everybody needs to know this music. I'll hand out flyers on the street, whatever you need. And I literally typed out my resume, which was like waitressing jobs, and I mailed it. And wow. I, I was so mortified. I mailed this like very passionate, emotional letter with my waitressing job resume uh, to his management office that was in the EP liner notes. And I told my friends the next day, I was like, guys, I'm so embarrassed. I don't know (laughs) if I can like try to get this letter out of the post box. (laughs) I mailed it at like 2.30, 3am. Like, and this was back in the day where there were no cell phones. The the way that I would like talk to my parents is I would like use the payphone at the end of the hall of my dorm. And so, you know, I told all my friends I was like mortified and I can't, that, so I mailed it on a Friday. I'll never forget it. And the following Wednesday, I got home from a class and there was a note on my door that said, Lori, Jeff Buckley called. And I was like, oh. and I said to my friends, I was like, you guys are such assholes. Like, I'm <laughs> so embarrassed. Like, I can't believe that. And they were like, we swear to God. like call that number (laughs) and I called the number and it was his manager at the time and he said you know Jeff got your letter he really loved it he wants you to come in can you he needs a lot of help with his mail and you know running errands for him and stuff could you come in so 
That was a Wednesday. I figured out the Metro North the next day. I got to DL Entertainment on Thursday morning and his manager was like so confused because he was like, okay, so I see, you know, you worked at Howard Johnson, like, <laughs> like Jeff really, he, he really wants you to, to like help him. And I was like, done. I needed an internship too. Um, but I would have worked for him for free anyways. Um, so that started it. And I was there for, you know, a lot of the Grace tour. Um, wow. It was pretty amazing. I got to like, you know, type out his little tour book and be on conference calls and sort you know he got piles and piles and piles and piles of mail and being the person that Jeff was he of course wanted every letter read he wanted it to be seen to be answered he got a lot of emotional letters obviously um and if people needed something signed, I would like send him a stack of. Yeah, you also weeded out the stalker ones. <laughs> I sure did. Important. So I guess my um, protection of the Buckley clan started back then because <laughs> I would start, you know, I started to see like the same. People would send letters that became more and more and more kind of agitated. And so I would set those aside <laughs> and be like, uh, they're going on the list. I have a little spreadsheet. Um, and when they would hit different cities where, you know, some of these people were, I, I was friends with his uh tour manager too and I would talk to Jean and be like okay here's the list of people to look out for in <laughs> the city um, but Jeff was always like whenever he'd be in the office he'd be like where's the stalker pile like he <laughs> the stalker pile um but it you know I kept things organized for him I made sure that if people had requests, they were answered. If he needed something picked up, I would pick it up. And he was always so gracious and he was so thankful to have help with his mail. But for me, I was so happy to do whatever I absolutely could to help him. So it was a really great experience. And Honestly, um, a couple of the people in that office, like I'm, I'm still very, very close with Jack Bookbinder who worked there and um, some of the guys from the band I still keep in touch with. Yeah. It's a great experience. Well, Mary, Mary, do you remember the first time Jeff performed on stage and were you there? <laughs> well, the first time we, we have film of the first time he performed on stage. He was 15. Wow. In Orange County, California. They were they had at the time they were trying to have uh, uh, clubs that were non-alcohol rock clubs. It was just to try it out. Right. I don't know how they didn't 
they didn't do well because kids were sneaking the alcohol in. Mm -hmm. um, but in this case, they he and his his garage band performed. Uh, it, this was during the police years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, and we actually have a uh, uh, um, eight millimeter film that's now been converted to digital of him singing. You got to You got to And it, this is this is in his thirteen year old before it breaks voice. Roxanne. Roxanne. <laughs> Yes. Nice. Roxanne. <laughs> and he cut his own hair so that it was short on top and kind of a a party in the back kind of thing happening, but but spiky and oh, it was, it's it's adorable. But his dad had to be at the back of the room, so you're literally you know at the back of the club looking up at a at a white hot light shining down on his blonde spiky head, and and he's singing in that high pitched voice. But it's just precious. Now the first, yeah. but when I first heard the music he was writing himself, I used to see him play guitar in all the bands that he was in. I'd go to LA and wherever he was going, he knew if he had told me where he was playing, I would be there. Yeah. Sometimes he didn't tell me because he didn't want me to see the group he was playing. <laughs> with. But he would play with anybody. He he played, you know, guitar and backup, but and backup vocals for for just about eight different groups when he was going to Musicians Institute. But the wow. first time he gave right me now. a tape of his own music that he was writing, it was some really heavy metal kind of stuff. There's one on there called Radio that is just a headbanger, and he sent me the tape from school. And then I played it, and I thought to myself, "Oh shit, what am I going to do if I don't like this music?" <laughs> This is not going to be good. Um, and then it changed. He just, whatever that influenced him at that time, he kind of, then he went into other, he went into more jazz after that. But 1819, he wanted to do something that kind of changed the world and write different music, but he didn't really know how. After studying song forms, Mm -hmm. Right. So the, all the, the classics, the great, uh, um, you know, the great American songbook, the Ella Fitzgerald period in his life. Yeah. Really uh, brought him to some of the real great songwriters. And that's where he started picking up some more uh, lessons. He was a total autodidact. He, he did not own a television, but he had stacks and stacks or a bookshelf, by the way. But he had stacks and stacks of books lined all around his apartment, you know, on top of each other this way. Nice. You. So they were, you know, four or five foot tall all around the apartment. Wow. It, it kind of makes sense, too, when I, when I hear you describe it that way, like the, the wealth of influence that he had, because he would like uh, pull all of these kind of like magic tricks in the music where it, the music would just take you places you didn't even expect to go. Like, wouldn't you say, am I right about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, see, I'm an actress. And I know that one of the fundamentals of doing that work or any kind of artistry is you know how to get yourself in that zone. Yeah. And once you're in that zone, the house can crash down around you, but you're there doing that thing that you do. And so when, and the reason why Jeff rarely Oh, I can't, I can't, I've heard everything that he recorded and I cannot identify two that are exactly the same. Mm. 
because he would get into that zone and just be in the moment, in the now, with whatever that expression he was about to do. Sometimes it wasn't as deep as other performances, but they were reflective of what, what mood or what space his head or his creative spirit was in in that moment. Yeah, he was always he never said it, right? there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to normal practice in music is where you learn your song, you perform it the same way every time so that the audience, so that your audience, oh, it's like hamburgers, right? The McDonald's said, we want everyone to get the same burger no matter where they are, right? And that's one way of approaching a performance. Like Broadway performances are very often, you know, cookie cutter performances. You go up and you do the same thing. You give the same 60% every night so that you don't dry yourself out doing eight performances a week. Yeah. But if you're Jeff Buckley, you might die tomorrow. He was, he was like, no, we only have, he said it in the Chicago concert. All we have is now, 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 now. Well, I will say that was one of the first things I noticed because the first song that I listened, that I heard of him was Hallelujah. But if you mm. listen to the album version and then the live versions, every one is slightly different. And I remember telling Sam, I was like, dude, it's almost like you get a different song every time mm. you listen, every time he performs it. And that, like you said, it's not a, it's not a hamburger. It's not two buns, a piece of meat and cheese. You you don't know, you know it's going to be amazing and emotional, but you don't know exactly where he's going to take you. And I feel like every song, I mean, first of all, that album, Grace, it takes you to a lot of different places. I mean, it'll be sweeping, beautiful melodies, and then, then you hit the song like Eternal Life, and it gets heavy and dark. It's He really was a master at using his voice and his guitar at, at emoting, and that's something I'm... I'm I've never been that good at, but I'm so I'm so jealous of his ability to do that. And he truly is an icon because when Robert Plant and Jimmy Page say "Bravo," you know that's yeah. that's high. <laughs> and, and, and Chris Cornell, are you kidding me, Chris Cornell? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One that's, of the things all- that I always, you know, Mayor, we've talked about this. Like Jeff's life was so short, but it was so full. And I'm always so grateful that he had the experiences that he had with like Jimmy Page picking his album for Mojo Magazine or Paul Paul McCartney. Yeah. uh, uh, Inviting him when he was the host of uh, SNL, he went out of his way to, to insist that Jeff, that he wanted to meet Jeff. They said, well, what can we do for you, Mr. McCartney? How can we bring flowers. What, what would you like to eat? He said, no, I want to meet. There's a, somebody I want to meet. And it's this young man named Jeff Buck. Nice. That's yeah. incredible. So he sat in the audience at the SNL and then he went out to dinner with Paul after that. Oh and my God. Thing, yes. And the very first thing that appeared when I came back from Memphis after losing him that was sitting on my doorstep was the most beautiful orchid from Paul and Linda with a personal note. That's beautiful. So he he touched a lot of people and and you know Elvis was a, a performed at his at his funeral he was in fact he was on the phone with Jeff uh, uh, constantly in the last couple of weeks of his life he wanted he wanted to lure Jeff to England to do another uh, uh, festival so you wow. know, there were very very impressive artists that he adored and and was in awe of who turned exactly. to him and said, 
OMG, young man, you're you're very very special. And and uh, Patty too. Patty. Oh my God! Yes, that's right. Oh yeah, he was he loved Patty Smith, and then he got to work with Patty Smith, which was such a huge like he was so excited over that. Um, and he does a beautiful performance on one of her songs, but you know those experiences like. Thank God he had them. I, I'm so glad that he had those experiences, you know, as just a, outside of being an artist, he was still a fan. And you know, that's, there's that little bit in the EP, the, the Grace EP where he says, you know, and what do I want to do? I just want to be in the world and make music with other people. I just want to be with other people who are making music, you know, yep. There was no uh, no other goal, right? Yeah. When when the critic when the music critic pundits not critics because they just punditized them. They're, the the pundit the music punditocracy attributed him, you know, kind of ambition and he wanted to be a rock star and all <laughs> of those. He, he was shocked to see people show up. He was shocked at the crowds and, and the at the adulation. He just loved making music and and doing it. And that was that was the the living part that was the light and in between not so much darkness it just wasn't light <laughs> right. so he, he wrestled with that a lot is that what you're 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 saying like how, how did that work out for him when i i'm pretty sure i'm talking to souls here mm-hmm. when you're deeply shit hurts that wouldn't normally hurt other people and the the fact that he was was someone who felt pain over the cruelty of man you know mankind is an oxymoron yeah he he encountered um cruelty and desperation mm-hmm. on the streets of new york and in his life and uh maddened him so when he was on stage you know and enveloped in to be a form of love, you know, not most or best, and not something you want to depend on, but surrounded by all that positive energy and it getting in touch with what was going on in his soul was the not just the highest spiritual moment, but the most peaceful and the most calming and the most enjoyable for him. And the rest of it was like it's like the rest of us schmucks walking around in <laughs> to tie our shoes. I also think like, you know, he was such a one in a million type of person too. Like I've worked with a lot of different musicians in my career and like, I, I never formally after Jeff passed away, there was no way I could like work with somebody and he was so here's one of the i think just epitomizes the kind soul that he was so you know i got to work there and but he was on the road so i didn't get to meet him for quite a while and the first time i met him was at the tower records in store in new york 
I was so nervous. <laughs> um, and he, uh, Jack brought me up to like the manager's office where he, and he was like, oh, Jeff wants to meet you. He's upstairs. Come with me. So I went upstairs and Jeff had been talking to the manager and the manager was like, whatever you want, you know, you can go through all the records and CDs that you want. And we'll figure it out. So meanwhile, I'm like, it was my first experience, like meeting, like, so not only somebody that I like loved his music, but somebody that I worked for, I wanted to make a good impression. And he was like standing near these two stacks of CDs. And I went to like shake his hand, but I kind of jerked a little bit and I knocked over all of the CDs. <laughs> I was mortified, but Jeff, being the type of person he was, like, I, I felt like I was going to die inside. <laughs> and he didn't even, like, he didn't giggle. He, he, it was like it didn't happen. He just started, like, he was looking at me, talking to me, seeing me while restacking the CDs. Like, it had never happened. And I think that says a lot about who he was. Yeah. Like, he was just a kind person. And that same show, you know, I didn't know know when he was going to be in town again. Like, his schedule was really varied. Obviously, he was hardly ever in New York. Um, and I stood in line to get one of the, the pictures autographed. And I got up to, like, the counter, and he was like, why are you in the line? <laughs> and I was like, I'm I'm going to stand in line with everybody else. Like, I just thank you for this opportunity to work for you and to learn about the music industry. And he was like, oh my God, never stand in the line. <laughs> you know, he was just like so sweet about it. I still have the photo. And he he um wrote on it. Lori, you, uh, Lori, and he spelled it right. Um, he was L A U R I E. I didn't even tell him. And he said, "Lori, you have sweetly saved my worthless butt." Thank you. <laughs> oh wow! After Jeff passed, when I was in New York uh, working on sketches, this was uh, right after nine eleven, hmm. and I was staying at a friend's, uh, uh, subletting a friend's apartment on Duane Street, which was right, you know, overlooking the ground zero. And I got a message, I, I would go into the studio every day and um, I got a message that Patty Smith um, wanted to meet me. Because I had sent over Jeff's Esraj, which was uh, the Indian instrument that he had used on the album when he performed for her on, on uh, I think it's Southern Cross was the one. Yeah. Um, so, of, of course, <laughs> I said, yes, I stopped what I was doing and went down. I think she was on McDougal Street. Yeah. I, her house I'm for a long, I, long time. I picked that up from the music in to get to her. Do you remember? Yeah. 
So we sat on her stoop and talked. She also, well, she loved, she brought me, invited me into her house and she was doing this, uh, uh, this painting on uh, this artwork on canvas that was, you know, that famous picture of the grids of, the, of ground zero that was taken by the only photographer that was allowed down there. Yeah. But she had taken a, a, an it projected it onto canvas and was using words, poetry to fill in. So it's, but when you stood, it was so tiny that it looked like, like quantalism. But when you got close to it, you could see she was literally writing poetry and words and names and things. It was just oh, amazing. Wow. Anyway, we sat on her front stoop and she told me the story of how she met Jeff. It had been right after um, Fred's, it was after Fred's death and the first time she was going to perform probably at CBGB's or, you know, some small place. And her bass player had reached out to Jeff and knew that he adored her and invited him to come and be in the, you know, the green room with him and, and sit wherever he wanted in the, in the place. And Jeff chose to sit right on the apron of the, of the stage, right on the edge on the, on the other. So she's telling me the story of how she was just so, um, had such deep stage fright and was intimidated, and we we never expect our our goddesses to be uh, insecure about anything. But apparently, that first performance after Fred's passing, she was just so emotional. She every time she stepped up to the mic during the intro, she would choke up and she couldn't uh, couldn't utter a sound. So she'd back away and walk towards the drummer. And she said, "I felt this presence off to my, my left." It was something, and she says, you know, I, I have a vision problem. <laughs> and I said, yes, it's a very, very famous issue. She goes, well, so I was, I couldn't see who it was, but it was very definitely someone sitting Indian style, you know, squatted over on the corner. And he was just sending me like this energy. And he was going like this with his hands towards me, right? Just... And just to like willing me to be able to to clear my throat and sing, and he, she said it just was so overpowering that uh, and piercing that at the end when it was all over, she asked Lenny, "Who was that person?" And she goes, "Oh, Jeff Buckley. He wants to meet you." She says, "I've got to meet him." Wow! And that's nice. when you know that's when they met. So, and apparently she needed to tell me that story because she said it was so healing. Of all the people in the room that adored her, all of them wanted her to sing. All, all of them were there to receive something from her. There was only one person in that place that was giving something to her, and she could feel it. Wow. What That's a great amazing. story. Okay, this kind of leads me to my next question. You're talking about being on stage. Did Jeff have a routine before he went on stage? And after he was off stage, did he? did his mood change? I mean... As a performer, I'm always curious about how people react to like warming up. Because, like you said, Patty, even Patty Smith got kind of jittery before she went out on stage. A pro, somebody's been doing it her whole life. And then, when when the crowd noise dies down and the lights are off, what happens then? I mean, I don't know exactly how much you guys were there for him before and after, but I would imagine after giving that much emotion, you would just be completely spent. You know, I, I can't I can't say that I noticed any of that and when i was there at performances there was always an after party yeah right and and generally speaking that's what he would he would he would be hyped up 
So okay. we'd uh, uh, get Gene to find uh, uh, some bar someplace with a pool table, right? That sounds- and he'd probably be there till till they threw him out. Okay, well that answers that question. He was a he was a partier. <laughs> he was a partier. I mean, yeah, I mean everybody's different. Some people go into a shell afterwards. It sounds like he wanted to keep living, and that's actually pretty oh, pretty sure. cool. I love that. I love that 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 little tidbit there. I'm sure is sure people well, are going mostly to be with the locals. Like yeah. it wasn't something where he wanted to have his fan club have an event afterwards or a meet. He avoided meet and greets at all possible because there was always industry people there. And a newspaper yeah. person there. So um, he, no, fuck the meet and greets. He wanted to go to the nearest really cool bar and go, where people wouldn't know who he was. Very right. often that was not the case because the people who would leave the club would then go to that bar and meet. they'd say, oh, I just saw you perform. And that would be cool. And he'd play pool with them. Yeah. But it would, but it would, it would always, you know, have something about learning about whatever little town he was in or what little space he was in. And he always, instead of bringing an opening band with him, um, he always insisted that there be a local band open for him. Oh, that's really cool. People in that tone that showed up to see him would be turned on to that new band or that band in their town. Nice. I love that. Yeah. I saw some, you know, there there was some really cool, uh, we have a tape of, I went to New Orleans to see one at the, at the Howlin' Wolf, which was really cool, and the opening bands were just really cool. And you go, "Wow, where did you find them?" You know? <laughs> <laughs> really, really cool. It seems like you know what I what I hear de- describing around all this is that you know he gave so much to the music, like that was like imp- more important um, than than what some things are to people. Like that was one of the most important things to him. Is that? Am I right in saying it that way? You know, and and uh, one of the one of the most amazing things too is just how like his music continues to uh, affect people and to in influence. And I think I know in a large reason that's because of like the work that you do, Mary, and the work that that you did with the with the documentary, Lori, and 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 you know, Mary curating his legacy, like. How do you uh, approach that? Like, how has that uh, worked into your life now? You know what I mean? It's just, it's beautiful. Well, I've had one overriding philosophy over the whole thing. And that was, uh, and I literally articulated it to the Sony people, just kind of wrap it all up and put it in a little little thing because everybody was going in all different directions. Yeah. And I said, look, the music are his only true remains. Yeah. And what you're trying to do is put an Armani suit on him, give him a nice haircut, and then real pretty shoes. And I'm telling you right now that we're going to leave his hair messed up. He's going to wear jodhpurs, the holy jodhpurs, the V-neck t-shirt, and the Doc Martens. Do you get me now? Yeah. Yeah. So, and they, they all nodded, you know, then they nodded their heads. They got it. Yeah. And one of the things I'm proudest of was the legacy version of Grace. Because when we went in to remaster it, we removed all of the compression. So you could literally hear the horsehair strings go across the violins and the pluck of the pizzicato and uh, the breath of 
the people who were playing, you know, the, the wind instruments. Um, and it sounded more like you were sitting in the middle of the orchestra instead of, you know, listening to on the radio. Um, doing that kind of work is, is where my ear and, and my sense of what we should do to it or not do to it yeah. came through. And one of the most important relationships I've created was uh, with Vic Anasini, who is now, who's the last remaining master mastering master of Sony's they don't even have their own studio anymore but they where where they do do that work that mastering remastering work is all almost all they do now um when uh when the, when Sony wants to do something and they try to just send it over to Vic he says well I won't do anything touch anything till Mary comes to town and that's when I get excited too <laughs> so I you know so I've created those relationships they trust me he knows that when I come in I have a down to the second rundown of, of what we're going to do and what order it should go in and, and you know, wishes and, and hopes or dreams of how to do something. And he can always go, oh yeah, I can fix that. Because there are little anomalies with what we're working with. It's all old stuff. And, yeah. you know, everything has changed so much technologically that, um, you know, when you bring in a task camp, something that's been recorded on a task camp four track, <laughs> and then you bring it in to try and digitize it, the the sonic communications break down sometimes, right? Yeah. Well, and funny. You need a real master to fix those things. Funny you should mention that because me and Sam got our start on Tascams. That's amazing that <laughs> that Jeff Buckley was recording on Tascams. It actually makes me, it's pretty cool. I got to say, it's pretty amazing. But yeah, I imagine the technology, the old technology, trying to digitize it and sync it all up would be quite a quite a task. Right. But what's really amazing is to sit behind Vic because he's got that screen now. And you know how they used to have just the wave before and now it's a cloud. He can go literally go in like a surgeon and pick out a certain sound and pull that out and clean it up. And I think it's so important too for people who are either just discovering him or, you know, have been fans all along to know like the love and care that goes into the it, the reissues of any of the work. Like it is a laborious process for Mary, you know, and she's very obviously protective, but she wants everybody to hear it. And, you know, without Mary, there wouldn't be the legacy that there is no and the film that i did with my friend nyla um and her husband peter like when we made that film i was you know a we started it six months after jeff passed away wow um, but i because I had worked for him and I had seen him here and I knew like the French and the Australians got it, but I was so worried, like, honestly, like heartbroken about obviously him passing away. Yeah. But I was so afraid that people wouldn't know, you know, and I was like, People have got to know, and, you know, Mary gave me the clearance 
to work on this film with with Nyla. And, you know, we traveled the world pretty much to, and it was very healing and restorative to, because the whole film was about artists inspired by Jeff. Why were you inspired? What did you get from his music that you didn't get from anywhere else? And that was like, it gave me so much hope that people would know, you know? Um, and now, like, all these years later, I'm like, well, what was I worried about? <laughs> well, that's uh, that sort of validates my, my concept that all I had to do was to keep people from fucking it up. Yeah. That, that the music spoke for itself, that his artistry and what he put into it was all it needed, right? Um, and... I think there's, I saw something on YouTube a, a couple of months ago. There's two young black guys who, who uh, listen to things for the first time. Oh, yeah, and, Lost in Vegas. Right, right. <laughs> and they, they have a one where they're listening to Genesis. Yeah, I love those guys. I absolutely on. love those guys. I love right. them, too. Okay, the well, they also have a Jeff Buckley one. Oh, wow, I got to see it. Yeah. You have to check it out. There's also an Irish gal who is a vocal coach who literally breaks down from bar to bar what Jeff is doing with his voice and how he's manipulating it vocally. Uh-huh. So that, and there's a lady uh, at Princeton, uh, um, a literature teacher, uh, uh, who has a class on Grace, on the album Grace. Wow. There's people out there, <laughs> you know, yeah. doing this stuff. Well, I mean, you're totally right. Like, you just have to to keep them from fucking it up and just keep the music out there. I mean, obviously, it it has taken a life of its own. I mean... That and, was so important. That she... Mary gave it, you know, the the care and the protection that it needed so it would be in the world in the way that it's like true versus like i'll tell you what it is laurie it's me letting them own the music it's me letting the listener own the music i didn't put mary Gibert in there at all and i didn't let anybody else put themselves in there either my biggest job was to say no the most powerful word i have ever had was to say no and you had to and learn that lesson hard. Once they feel like they own it, once it reaches them and they go, oh my God, that's my music, then I have I have nothing else to do. They're sharing it and playing it out the window and blasting it in their car radios and giving it away for Christmas presents and sharing it and stealing it and you know doing whatever they have to do. Because when you find music that touches you, you have to share it. And I knew that if I just let that happen, that it would be okay. And then the hardest part since the music is the easiest part, being a musician myself, I, you know, I love that. That's really cool. I'm really proud of the work I've done. The sure. most challenging thing has been handling uh, the concept of the movie, of the biopic. You want, oh you, yeah, we should talk about yeah, that. Let's so speak, let's speak um, to when that. is this actually uh, being released? Okay, so we're, it, it will be released in 2023. Mm-hmm. Where our current schedule, <laughs> you know how these things go, is to begin principal photography in uh, first of September. Okay. 
We we have cast who's going to play Jeff, Reeve Carney of uh, of Spider-Man on Broadway fame, sings and dances at the same time, is an amazing virtuoso guitarist and um, and and really is going to be doing an amazing job. So we're casting for the other parts right now. We have some really amazing actresses in mind, but they all have to say yes and schedules and COVID and blah, blah, and blah, blah. Yeah. Um, but however, we, we've got our Jeff, um, we've got our band. Yeah. We've got our, you know, we, we've got the people that, uh, uh, and Orion, our, our director producer is, uh, has so many friends in Hollywood that they're all coming forward now. <laughs> you know, Mary McCartney wants to be our, <laughs> wants to have something to do. <laughs> I said, sure, she could be the, the <laughs> person or whatever. But, uh, you know, everybody's reaching out and saying, what can we do to help? You know, really wonderfully talented, famous people who can, help us whatever we need but we we've got all the financing we need we've got all of the enthusiasm we need and now that we're going to get everybody vaccinated so we can be together and shoot yeah. and you know do move films again although it will never be the same guys it will never be the nope. same they're figuring out that they can film with 18 people instead of 34 yep mary i think it would be good um just you know, we know the fan base. I think it would be good for you to talk a little bit about why it's the film is so important. Oh my goodness. Well, the hardest part was to get someone to write a screenplay that didn't read like a format biopic. Everybody just wants to take it in a straight line, you know? me in the stirrups, <laughs> pushing out a baby, you know, that, uh, that kind of stuff. Sure. And I, I, I just wanted it to be more imaginative than that. You know, I used to be able to say early on, no fucking way, no biopic on Jeff Buckley because you people fuck it up every time. No fucking way. <laughs> and then walk the line came along. Oh, yeah. And I went, oh, fuck. <laughs> okay. Well, if I could get that, if I could get someone to write a script like that, if I could get someone who really, you know, knew how to write dialogue and uh, got Jeff and all that. So I can't even, I've lost count of how many screenwriters have. So uh, many, so many. Can't tell you, can't tell you. And um, I found the right screenwriter. So what's happening now is a script I don't know. Have you ever watched the film um, "Listen to Me, Marlon"? It's no. a documentary on Marlon Brando. But when he talks about acting and how what what the experience is and how you and how the how they visual they they compose the film visually, so that you hear someone talking and what you see is even more informative and beautiful, and you know it kind of engages you while you hear the words. You don't have to have people talking the scene through yeah you hear it in the voiceover and then what you're seeing is beautiful and visual and uh more imaginative i love that and that is what we got all right he's so amazing because that's kind of that's that's the feeling you get when you listen to his music right like there's right? so much more going on it's yeah. so exciting to yeah. hear that you're connecting to do the this music thing like with this film so many sausages 
right? I wanted the I wanted to, to be yeah. a good film, <laughs> as well as you know something like that. Yeah, and yeah. also, we have a documentary. I have a really amazing uh, a filmmaker director. Uh, again, a lady. The screenwriter is a lady, Dion Jones, and uh, and I have another lady who wants awesome. to read, uh, uh, anonymous at the moment until she makes her big announcement. But she's working on. Uh, um, a documentary and I it's for the first time <laughs> I'm giving her access to all of what I have in the archives which is uh, you wow. know everything everything that we have on film people talking about Jeff going I even bought all of the outtakes from the French documentary that was made in uh, 98 99 something like that so sure. uh, in exchange for my participation, I said, okay, when you're done, what do you do with this? They said, well, we don't know because I said, right, <laughs> here, I'll write you a check. I want everything, all the outtakes, everything. And that's what I had. So we have people in real time. Now, Hal Wilner got taken by COVID, but we have him on film talking about the first time he met Jeff and bringing him into St. Anne's for the concert. That's going to be incredible. Yeah, yeah. So that's the, the 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 pipeline looks like that coming out uh, in in mid twenty two, okay, followed by uh, the release of the biopic at Cannes. We hope uh, to premiere it there uh, 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 in twenty three. Well, so and Lori, I'm sorry. Go ahead, finish. Oh, that's what's in the pipeline for now. Well, Lori, I got to tell you, I watched your documentary today, and it really moved me. It was a really good. It, it, it covered so many different things. I felt like I knew him better at the end of it. Um, you handled you handled the end really well. I um, that was, you know, the the end part of it. Like my my friend slash um, partner in the film, Nyla. Thank God for Nyla. Nyla was the voice of reason in the film, um, honestly, because I was, there was no way that I had an objective bone in my body. Understood, understandable. And I, you know, she helped make a lot of those, like we fought for, I was, I didn't even want to show like headlines. I was like, I couldn't handle it, but she was like, just let me handle this part because we have got to cover the fact that he is no longer here and but that was like you know it was a long process making that film because again we didn't know what we were doing we did it all on our own dime so you know my mom would be like what do you want for christmas and i'd say I need a lavalier. <laughs> like we would, um, you know, save up. So we would, we did whatever we needed to do, but it, it, you know, with the inexperience, but we worked at A&E at the time, which was back then, especially in the nineties, it was like the home of docu-series and that was one of Nyla's biggest passions was you know all the we were around so many people making docu documentaries or history channel stuff and I um you know I couldn't handle 
kind of stuff. And people the, can still see it though. Where do you go to see it? Well, now you have to um, watch it on YouTube, which we have no idea how it got there. We did not get there. Um, unfortunately, I don't know if Grace Around the World is still in print. Probably not, honey. No, um, but that's where people used to be able to buy it. Um, but I still get emails on Facebook from people who have seen it you know, on YouTube in either pieces or in full, I'm not quite sure. Um, but it was What we'll do is we'll, we'll track it down and we'll make sure to post it on our uh, page. Yeah, yeah, we'll, yeah, that'd be great. We'll it's, post. There's also, there's also a full concert uh, video of Jeff at uh, the Metro in Chicago. I've seen right. bits of that. Amazing. It should be from beginning. That's the one where he go, where somebody keeps yelling out a Tim Buckley song for him to sing, and he keeps. Going, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's always there's always one guy in the crowd, and there always one smartass. Oh, oh, well, you know, we had he he had a practice of because he didn't want people to be bootlegging him, especially sound guys in the in the clubs. Yeah. Right. So he had his uh, his tour manager bring in his own dats and slap them in the sound board and then take them out when he left. Nice. So we had about 80 tapes of full concerts. Only problem about half of them, it was a 60 minute tape. So oh. the last half hour would tape over the first half hour, but it was only for the purpose of depriving someone else of having a recording. Mm -hmm. It wasn't there for Jeff to preserve his performances. There are about 20 that are beginning to end. No, uh, uh, sonic problems, uh, no issues, and you can hear somebody, especially in Australia, going "Play Hallelujah!" Normally, he ends that. Even it's even like after the on is the encore of the encore of the encore, right? It's his big good night. So it's equivalent. <laughs> it's equivalent to somebody yelling out, "Play Freebird." Right? Yeah. Yes. It's like, right. no, it's no, it's wait. True. <laughs> I was trying to explain a couple days ago. I don't know if you remember. I'm sure you do. Kangaroo. Oh, yes. How? I don't know if what I have in my memory is the longest version. It was like nine minutes and 37 seconds. Oh, <laughs> wow yeah sony told him that they didn't want him to use that in the didn't want when well, they wanted him to stop using playing that in performances because it put it, it was it was too long and not enough words and like that so he said fuck you and he played it for 30 29 minutes and 37 seconds i love that that's rock and roll right there right oh yeah. and i you should know that sebastian bach has a rocking heavy metal version of eternal life somewhere on youtube i've seen i've seen it it was on, it was on laurie's documentary i believe yeah oh that's right yeah. that's right that's right yeah he does that all he does that when he plays out to remember and i loved talking to sebastian about jeff a nyla and i were so excited because we were big skid row fans <laughs> but like talking to him about jeff was amazing he is he was so genuinely 
a fan. Oh my God, when he met me, he would not get off of his knees at Juke. <laughs> he got that on both knees and took my hand and kissed my hand. He goes, Oh, and put his head down. Go, stop. Please get up. It's all right, honey. Awesome. <laughs> adorable, adorable man. Adorable. It was really cool to hear people like, you know, that I grew up listening to talk about Jeff. Like, it was it was a great experience and he genuinely like his heart is so pure when it comes to his love for Jeff. It's incredible. See, that's what makes me so excited about having these documents of his life and his music from the from the documentary that you made. Everybody should go and stop and and see this film. Um thank you. And and you know we'll we'll post a link to it. Stop and see that because it really captures this the spirit of him. Like I felt like I I got to know him a little bit from after finishing that, and it's just just a beautiful beautiful uh, work of art, Lori. Just really incredible. Thank you. I'll tell Nyla too. Like we we talk about it all the time. Like where it's the only piece of art I've ever made that I don't feel like I even had a choice in. It was like something I had to do. Yeah. It was out of my control. Yeah, when when musicians uh, approach me with questions, as they often have over the years, when I, because I'll go, you don't make it a a job to go to tributes, but I I go to some, right? And they ask, you know, what do you do? What do you do to be a, you know, a successful musician? And my answer is always, if you really are going to be a successful musician, if there's a plan B, don't even bother because it's too hard to be a musician. Yeah. There's no plan B and there's nothing else you can do in life and you cannot imagine your life being anything but a musician. Then swing for the fences. Otherwise get the fuck out, baby. As, as Jeff did, Jeff swung for the fences. He's on my playlist now. I've got a walk mix that I use out when I go out and exercise, and there's a couple songs of his that are really great walking tunes, and I feel like I want to keep Jeff, just like all my other, the guys I love, like Zeppelin and the Beatles, and I've been lately been getting into Prince. I've just been... I've, oh, my God, yes. I just, I want to keep Jeff, I want to keep him in my life. I want to keep his music present, and I, I would just like to thank the both of you so much for for keeping Aww. his legacy alive. Like I said, I'm a, I'm a stay at home dad, and I need I need a little pick me ups. Jeff is was that I've been listening to him. I sat down with Grace, meaning to listen to it in parts. I ended up listening to the whole thing. My kid was running around being wild. I was like, I got I got I got to finish listening to this. And that was last weekend. Great, two weekends ago. Great, great, great album. Just I can't say enough. Thank you for keeping his memory alive it's my pleasure it's my it is the my raison d'etre if i hadn't no one i wanted to be an actress (laughs) i wanted to sing and dance and uh you know and have that kind of a life but no if anybody had told me that when you grow up you're going to be the curator of a very important musician life and work I would have told them they were nuts. I had no idea that everything that I had gone through in my life would prepare me for this job or that it would be at such a cost. Yep. But it is 
what has turned out to be my life and my my vocation and my contribution to the world and i'm proud of it you should be would be i know like grateful proud and want you to be you know go do your own thing too but i am grateful to you mary for so many reasons and you don't start now i know (laughs) you know i love you dearly i adore you right back The, the work that mary does is not easy but it's and it's definitely not for herself. Oh, I, I would give it all. I would give it all up in a nanosecond to have him back, just to get one more kiss, just to hold him one more time, to hear his voice that's not on a recording. Absolutely, absolutely. But that's not what's going to happen. And this is what it is. And this is the best I can do with this. And I'll. Uh, I look in the mirror. I sleep just fine. Um. And um, my critics can uh, kiss my butt. You've converted at least two Jeff Buckley fans. Um, <laughs> like I said, I plan. I'm, do you know if any of his releases have been put out on vinyl? I'm a big vinyl collector. They're doing it now. As a matter of fact, if you go over the UK, where they still believe in vinyl, yep, and grownups are still the um, the base, the, the main base for music sales. Um, yeah, there are the all of the uh, all of the so right now we have the legacy edition of Shanae on vinyl. We have the legacy of edition of Grace on vinyl. Um, you and I, the last album that Allison and I released is on vinyl. You want some? Uh yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go order them right now. No, no, I have some right here in my house. I have. They give me extras. Oh, you I don't. Have, you don't have to do that. I don't. I thought I did. I think I do. Well, I'm not going to tell you no, but like I said, I've got a huge vinyl collection upstairs, and my 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 wife has been listening to uh, to Jeff's music a lot. We've been sitting and listening it to to it together. It's been kind of like a oh, honey. We even had it printed on special plastic, special colored plastic, and everything. Well, if you're going to give it to me, I'm not going to tell you no. But I would like to contribute to Jeff to the Jeff Buckley, uh, you know, the estate and whatever. Well, the downloads are really what counts now. They the, the yeah. vinyl is the the numbers on the vinyl is too small. That's an indication of where the you know there's there's a, a cream of the crop of the music right. lovers. Right, they, they that's a separate market altogether. Right, they know you spend on they'll you'll buy it at every at every medium. Right, you're going to get it on vinyl. You're going to download it to your devices, et cetera, et cetera. I just can't imagine how good. A song like "Lover," you should have come over would sound on vinyl, or "Grace," or "Eternal Life," or "Mojo Pin." Those, those, I mean, that would sound amazing on vinyl, especially with they've been they've been remastered and the compression has been taken out. Bravo to you! Yep, yep, yep. yep. There's a biopic coming out in 2023. Is that what you said? Twenty, yeah, the 2023. Uh, we are hoping to premiere at the Cannes Film Festival that year. And there's a new and there's a new documentary coming out. Does it have a title and a release date yet? Not yet. It's but the pro, but the project because of the schedule that we're on and the material that's coming forward, we're planning on releasing it in twenty two. Okay, and then and then Lori, do you want to do you want to just 
give the name of your documentary again and and we'll post a link to it so people can find it sure it's called amazing grace jeff buckley all right well this has been really fun guys i I I hope to one day meet you in person. I don't know if that will ever happen, but you guys are, you're both sweethearts. I love what you're doing. I love, I love Jeff's music. Thank you so much for coming on the show. So much to you guys for keeping it. You're the ones who keep it alive for me. I just, I prepare the meal. You share it with everybody. Oh, we're going to get it out there because, you know, if there's any uh, artist, uh, it's a, it's a very short list in my opinion of artists that, the, that have the, the the type of music that that Jeff was able to create that needs to consistently be put out there because people will will will, con, will continually rediscover its magic. It's true. And we're we're all so thankful for you keeping that legacy alive, Mary. You're so very welcome. It completes me. <laughs> well, until we meet again, I guess. Uh, thanks for coming on. And like I said, we'll send you the link. And once again. Jeff lives on in my house. I, my little boy's been listening to it. He's he's eight. I don't know if he's really getting it, but he's growing up hearing Jeff Buckley. So if that, I awesome. love that. I love that. <laughs> All right, Thanks that's... for having us. No problem. <laughs> Thank you guys. You know when when times are better, maybe uh, maybe we can all get together sometime. That would be amazing. Uh, totally. When you're out here, totally. That would be amazing. Over a bottle of French wine. That oh, that's right. nice. I love my yeah. wine. Yeah. I love my wine. <laughs> Peace and love, guys. Wow, what a great interview, Sam. J-Mac, I am so thankful for them jumping on um, and just spending so much time with us, you know, to talk about the legacy of an amazing artist like Jeff Buckley, but let alone to have, you know, his mother and his friend. I mean, that's really special. I'm going to remember this forever. I feel like that my my world is bigger for knowing meeting his mom and Lori. It was really, really special. Well, and and we hope that uh, that there's something there for the fans too that they could hear the way that he touched and uh, and affected the people closest to him says a lot about a person. Um, but on top of that, being one of the most incredible musicians of his generation, you know, it's really special. For two tape decks and a mixing board, my name is J Mac, and I'm Sam Wade. Saying until next week, stay, stay cosmic. cosmic.